Hello, everybody. Welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. James Kirstead. I'm a research fellow at the Initiative. I'm here with my colleague, Dr. Michael Johnston. And today, we're very pleased and honored to have Professor John Rain as a guest. Professor Rain is Emeritus Professor at AUT. He also served there as pro-vice-chancellor in various roles. And John, you also held senior administrative roles at Massey. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more about your career and what roles you held? Sure, James. I qualified in engineering at the University of Canterbury a very long time ago. And I then went and worked in industry in the UK, not in a sort of postdoctoral capacity, but as a direct professional engineer working in engineering design. And I then moved into a technical management role. From there, I came back to New Zealand after about seven years. And the area of engineering that I was in was not really available in New Zealand. And I went back into academia, first at the University of Canterbury, where I was lecturing and moved up through the system there and eventually moved from a sort of professorial teaching position into a pro-vice-chancellor role looking after commercial research and international business. Went on to Massey University, Albany, as Deputy Vice-Chancellor of the Albany Regional Campus in 2004, and then on to AUT in 2010. So as an engineer, I've always been interested in that connection between the university sector and industry, and have worked in that interface for much of my academic career. So I have been involved in that commercial transition of research into application and impact in the industry sector. So you've got a a number of decades of experience as an academic and then in university management. And so you're probably pretty well placed to comment on changes that have taken place in the university system. And certainly one of the things we'd like to talk to you about today is what you've seen happen in terms of the academic standards of universities over the time that you've been involved. Yes, I think when I look back, I would I would mark the, the particular change point as being the introduction of the NCEA around 20 years ago. A number of us in the university sector were involved in focus groups with the Ministry of Education, looking at the introduction of unit standards in the polytechs, looking at the introduction of a similar system in the through the NCA and the schools. And there's a lot of concern about the loss of a an integrated, disciplined learning process through particularly the maths and the sciences and that students would be moving to be able to select uh, from a a smorgasbord of topics that might be of interest, but they were not getting the strong basic instruction that was needed to enable them to take on more advanced study. And this became evident uh, around, or after several years, and by 2010, when I was at AUT, we had found it necessary to introduce remedial maths and physics courses for students who are coming into university to study engineering, but they just simply didn't have the basics. They couldn't do basic arithmetic and algebra. No. I, um, I remember actually at Victoria, the engineering faculty there and the mathematics school 
implemented a, a requirement for a merit level grade in the Year 13 Calculus Standard in order to go straight, right. straight into the standard undergraduate courses. And if they didn't have that, they would have to do a, a remedial mathematics course first. Exactly. That was exactly what happened at AUT as well. I'm not sure about the other universities. But I think that that situation has not improved. And alongside that, of course, you've got literacy issues and the ability of students to, to write a good discursive essay to write analytically and critically. That lack of a true critical thinking approach is often very evident. And I think we've got to, at this stage, be looking very hard at whether a reboot of that secondary education system is, is now required, which takes us back to basics. It's been discussed in the media. A lot of people are now pushing for that, yourself included, Michael. And I think it's a very important issue for New Zealand to address. Indeed. But on the other hand, you may have noticed a, a bit of media attention to a draft science curriculum that was recently produced by the Ministry of Education. It wasn't supposed to become public, but it did. And that document doesn't even mention physics or chemistry or biology as the sub-disciplines of science. It certainly doesn't specify anything about the core theoretical understandings of, the, of those sub-disciplines. So I think we are at a, at a crossroads, and I, I would hope, like you, that we return to something much more coherent, but the signs are that it could get even worse. Indeed, and, and I did read that draft curriculum statement, and I subsequently made a, a post myself around that, and I think that if, if we were to pursue that, it would be an enormous fail for New Zealand because, as you say, it is silent on the basics. I think taking a holistic approach to a curriculum is all well and good, and there are important issues for us to address in terms of environment and climate, which were raised in that. But I think rather than approach the curriculum from a, a topics of importance approach and from a New Zealand cultural approach, we ought to be asking, what is the basic toolbox that students need to emerge from school with in order to undertake more advanced study? And I'm sure that educationalists will be looking very hard at this right now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely speak to the, the writing part of that from my own experiences lecturing classics. I mean, I've been in New Zealand now at Victoria University for 10 years. And I would say that the weakest sort of third of the distribution has always had a lot of problems with writing, to be honest. But I think, I think that it's, it's now sort of become the bottom 40% or the bottom half. And, and I actually... I'm even more pessimistic than you because I think it's true that they can't structure an essay very well. They don't know how to argue very effectively. They don't know how to use evidence very effectively. But I think there's some even worse things going on. I mean, I don't think they know how to write sentences, a lot of them. And that, that's very troubling. They don't know how to use the apostrophe. And that's something that you should well, learn at really elementary school. I mean, even before the secondary school level. So the fact that that's not happening is for, for, for a lot of people, not just a few stragglers at the, at the at tail end of the distribution, but like a, a sizable chunk of the distribution doesn't know that stuff. It's quite worrying. Grammar, I don't think is not, no long, I don't think grammar is still formally taught in the schools, is it, James? It isn't taught in New Zealand schools formally. That's correct. 
Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. The irony is that if you learn a foreign language, you learn grammar. Yeah. And <laughs> I was going to say that. I mean, that's the thing. One of the traditional justifications for doing Latin, which, of course, is no longer in the NCA, is that yeah. you do actually learn grammar through Latin. Of course, English grammar isn't exactly the same as Latin grammar, but you learn some basic grammatical terms. And in a world where grammar isn't often taught through English anymore, using uh, learning a foreign language is often the only way that kids get some understanding for how languages or Indo-European languages are structured. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you that NCEA has not done good things for the university preparedness of our school leavers and particularly in mathematics and science. And I, I think that has to do with the structure of those disciplines. I think you can get away with it a little more in the humanities because yes. because they're not so hierarchical in their conceptual structure. But yes. we might look even further back than the NCEA and consider that, well, when I went to the to when I was, I was an undergraduate in the 1980s, it was under 10% of school leavers would go on to university, and now it's more like 30%. It was probably an even lower percentage when you started out at Canterbury. To what extent do you think that has led to the fallen standards? Because it seems to me inevitable that if you have a larger proportion of the population going into the university, that a larger proportion of that intake will be ill-prepared. I think that's a very valid point, Michael. I'm trying to recall, I think when I started university, it was possibly more like 15%, but uh, if, if school leavers were going to university, it may have been higher. But I, I, I think that another factor in this is that from around 1990, of course, the universities went from being pretty much completely supported with government funding to being open to the market. So the universities were able to market themselves. Students began to pay fees. The universities themselves started spending a lot of money on marketing, on student services. And you've seen the growth of the university administrative structures that, of course, carried a cost. But the 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 fact was that the universities were chasing enrollments and they were there was a lot of encouragement of students to go on to university. It became the expectation. And I feel it was almost a kind of a, part of our societal expectation that, that students expected were expected or they expected to go to university and get a degree. If they didn't do that, they, they weren't quite up there. Whereas there was, in fact, a huge need for us to have a strong polytechnic system and a lot of young people going into good vocational courses so that the country was properly equipped with many, many workers in the in the trades and other areas that the polytechnics used to deal very well to. I think we ended up with a lot of students at university who perhaps should not have been at university. But all of this, of course, has meant that we have had students who perhaps struggled more once they've got there, whether it's been because of their secondary education achievement levels or simply because the university were trying to broaden their catchment too far, I don't know. But one of the other consequences was, of course, that the TEC has started to introduce incentives to ensure more students graduating. So a few years back, they began to penalise universities on their funding for students if 
course pass rates were not high enough, which of course encouraged great inflation. Yes. And that didn't help the issue of standards within the universities. Then, of course, we've had the other issues around there were international students, some of them struggled for language reasons, but on the whole, their level of academic achievement prior to coming to New Zealand was was usually pretty good. And I think most for most of those students, the issues were around English language. But there were some weak students amongst the international cohort as well. Yeah. I mean, if you move to a commercial model, you're essentially treating your students as customers, and the customer comes to feel that it is their right to get the product, which is a degree, and so you have that pressure as well. And I think you make an excellent point about the the punitive funding regime from the TEC, and obviously that's going to have a, a great inflationary effect. I, I think the commercial approach may have had another pernicious effect on the university as well, and I'd be interested in what you think about this, that it really started to erode the, the university as a cultural institution because it turned it into a commercial one instead. And I think that may have opened the door to a whole lot of quite low-level courses and, and programs that you wouldn't have seen in, in the old university. Yes, I think I think that's that's quite possibly right. I, I don't I don't regard myself as any sort of expert in sort of educational philosophy, but I do believe that it's it is a very good thing for the universities to be teaching across broad broad spectrum, so that we are teaching across the humanities, social sciences, and the sciences, engineering, law, commerce. And that breadth is something that defines the university. However, it is also true that in recent years, there have been huge numbers of students graduating from things like communications degrees and then struggling to find good employment. And I'm not sure whether we've made altogether the right decisions about the way in which students are encouraged into certain streams of study. To what extent, you might ask, should a government or a university itself be directive in shaping the field of graduates that it's sending out into the community once they're done? It's a, it's a, it's a tricky question. I I've, last week had an article in the NBR around education, research and development and the, the high productivity economy. And in that, I was making a plea again for the country to produce more STEM graduates, because when you look at the industry sector, that's something where there's been a chronic shortage for many years. However, that presupposes you've got the flow of those students coming through from secondary schools, but we have that issue that not enough students are staying with maths and sciences after year 10, and therefore the flow of appropriately qualified students into the university isn't what we would like. But uh, that's my view as an engineer. I guess there'll be people in other disciplines who will say, well, I would like more of this or so on, but I'd be interested in your view. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, it's very difficult to sort of plan for these things because the government can't really know with perfect knowledge where the economy is going to go. 
Yeah, but of course, if you do want some, you do want a good bulk of STEM students, you have to prepare for that. Well, especially nowadays when they're not learning the schools, uh, the skills at school. Yeah, uh, my my view is that the university ideally shouldn't be primarily oriented towards serving the workforce or the economy. I, I mean, I think it obviously does have a role in making sure that we have enough graduates in science, in technology, in engineering, and mathematics. But in the end, I think it's the role of the vocational institutions more to be directly serving the workforce. I, I have a traditionalist view of the university, which is that its primary role is cultural, that, that it should serve as the critic and conscience of society, meaning that it should be politically neutral and, a, and be a venue for the discussion of ideas, for the testing of ideas through the methods of the different disciplines that are represented in it. Yeah, I think I think with all a lot of these institutions, it's good that there are some market forces at play because you do want some level of competition. The yes. question is just how much and when is it excessive? And I think yeah, we may have sort of reached that point. Well, also what the, the what the grounds for competition are, what mm. what you're competing for is is important. Yeah, but I mean, I also yeah. think that when you're 18 or 19 and you're coming to university for the first time. You don't necessarily know what's out there. I mean, there are lots of subjects which just aren't taught in school, and there are lots of subjects which you may not have appreciated in their sort of full majesty or their, or their full horror. And so I think it's important that universities actually maintain a broad range of courses and degrees so that it is actually... I mean, that actually is something that keeps it a market, right? You can't have these competitive incentives unless you actually give people choice. So it's actually important that, that universities sort of lay out a, a varied stall. No, I, I, I agree with that. And I, I also agree with you, Michael, that 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 focus on the critic and conscience of society role, the the cultural role is very important. And I think that that raises an interesting question about what is happening in New Zealand universities at present with the understandable wish to engage more strongly with Maori to bring more Maori and Pacifica students into the system, though I would I would profess any preface any remarks in this area saying that in order for this to happen, we've got to get far more of the students through primary and secondary school. Exactly. Exactly. I think that is the key issue. But we've we've now got this focus on universities wishing to be Treaty of Waitangi led. I feel that is a huge mistake. I think it, 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 it intrinsically politicizes the universities. And I think it's important for it to try and see the difference between engaging with Maori tradition and knowledge and, and incorporating that where appropriate into university courses. And I, I say we're appropriate because it's, it's part of our New Zealand culture and that that's fine. But we have reached a point where there is a great deal of mandatory imposition of uh, te ao Māori going on in the universities. And I think that if staff, if academic staff feel that this is problematical in relation to their own discipline, perhaps possibly in terms of relevance or the way in which it should happen, that they are finding it very difficult to to raise this without being asked to just 
go with the flow, be silent, let's just uh, roll on with this. And I think I think it would be far better if the universities themselves had said, we will remain as neutral institutions of higher learning. We will encourage staff and students to engage as seems appropriate, but we will not be imposing a a way of thinking or a way of learning that is possibly narrowing our institutional focus. Because to me, it is utterly critical that the universities remain internationally outward-looking and engaged and that they are drawing into their culture the learnings and the research that is going on worldwide, that the university culture is something which remains neutral neutral and exploratory always. And I feel that some of that is currently being lost. Yes, it's it's interesting. I worry that we're actually going to make a confusion of some of the disciplines by going down this road. And I think, I mean, I, I know little about Mataranga Māori. I'm certainly not an expert on that. But I do know what science is and... I suspect that part of the problem is that not enough scientists who are practicing actually understand the philosophy of science well enough to see the problem with trying to fuse it with kind of traditional cultural knowledge because science took many centuries to develop into the highly refined and quite counterintuitive set of tools for testing theories that it did. It's not just making observations, of course. Every culture has always done that, and every culture has developed technology and understandings of the natural world through doing that. But that, exactly. to, me, that to me is not the defining characteristic of science. The defining characteristic of science, to me, is really Popper's falsificationism. It's, it's that you actually put up a theory and then try to knock it down with systematic observation and testing and to the extent that you fail to do so, it becomes a more robust and valid explanation of something. Indeed. And I, th- I think that the, the very strong influence, and it's not just New Zealand now, but worldwide, of, the, of critical social justice theory has caused a, a lot of consternation amongst the science teaching and research community because it has tended to say, well, I believe that we can bring the, let's say, bring a spiritual element into this particular view of science so that we might be looking at the health of the of a lake which is suffering from eutrophication through to nitrate runoff. And the scientific approach would be to analyze what's going on and to look at how to control the runoff into that lake and to look at what can be done to purify it uh, from an established science point of view. But there may be also a cultural element with that where there's a damage to the, the lakes Maori, for example, and... I am troubled with it to the extent some of this thinking is being merged with a scientific approach in terms of what may be put in front of students. And I think yeah. it's important for us always to 
keep our religious or spiritual thinking a little bit separate from what we're doing when we're doing our deep scientific analysis. I think the separation um, of, of the material world from the spiritual world during the Renaissance is what made science possible. And yes, if we're saying yes. that we're going to reinfuse it with spiritual ideas, then not only do you risk kind of vitalist explanations of things, such as the one that you've just alluded to, the idea of Māori or life force pertaining to things that are not actually animate, more, even more seriously, I think you run a risk of insulating certain ideas from criticism and testing because if they're spiritual and religious ideas, they're held to be sacred. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I, I think we're seeing a, a good deal of this happening at the moment. And I would hope that this is a kind of a, a discussion that will evolve and we will see some uh, sensible position reached but the, the situation certainly seems to be quite volatile at present within the academic sector. Yeah, and what do you make of university leadership on these things? Because I think most people listening would agree that you know, universities are public institutions, so they should be neutral. And you know, leadership shouldn't be kind of putting their thumbs on the scale. I mean, I, I suppose in some sense, you know, universities take substantive positions on some things, but usually when there's a vast consensus in favor of a particular position in science... And I don't think Madarangamari and the presence of Modi and particles has reached that kind of consensus. So, yeah, how do you how do you think that university leadership is is doing at the moment? I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask James because it is now 18 months since I retired from formally from the university sector. So, but I still have a great deal of conversation with colleagues across universities in New Zealand. So, anything. I might say is really hearsay, right. but and what I've read in the media. Well, but I, I really go back to the point that I think that if we have vice chancellors who are declaring a position and saying this university will be Teteriti led, it implies that the university as a whole will embrace a certain way of thinking, and I think that is particularly damaging to what a university should be and therefore the roundabout answer to your question might be that I would be asking vice chancellors to think very carefully about the nature of what a university is going back to Michael's point about the critic and conscience of society a role the need for objective debate curiosity driven research and that we, you know, we are accepting our fallibility in thinking that we don't regard ideas as being closed and that if we lose sight of that and we, we're heading down a, a doctrinaire approach in one area or another, then that is a risk to the integrity of the university and its international credibility. So I think this is something that our, our university leaders should be thinking very hard about. Yeah, and I can tell you, as someone who's still working at Vic, I very much uh, agree with that. But we're probably out of time, actually, so it just remains for us to thank you very much for sharing your experience and your thoughts with us. Thank you. You're most welcome, and it's been an enjoyable chatting. Thank you, and uh, best wishes back in New Zealand with the weather and whatever's happening there now. Yeah, thanks, John. <laughs> <laughs>